Roxy, you recently sent me a screenshot of a tweet that I had literally screenshot myself the night before. It's a wild one. It is. It is from the editor of the anti-woke website Babylon Bee, and it's about unmarried women in America. As an unmarried woman in America, I definitely had some thoughts about it, as I'm sure you did too, and uh, some serious side eye. I'm rolling my eyes so heavily right now that you might be able to hear it. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single, unmarried, unmarried Christian women making our way in New York without losing our chutzpah. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. Roxy, this week we're doing something a bit different. Mm -hmm. We are starting by chatting about some news and trends that caught our attention. Think of it as fodder with a friend. Things that we would normally talk about over, just like hypothetically, a gin martini. With an onion in it. You can take the Gibson. I will take the traditional martini. We're doing this because many of you listeners have said you really enjoy Roxy's and my conversation. What can we say? We give good banter. We also have great guests. That's true today as well. Later, we will be chatting with immigration advocate and writer Karen Gonzalez. But first, let's talk about the midterms. Let's. There's been plenty of analysis of last week's midterm elections, which didn't quite turn out the red wave we'd been told would happen. Yeah, it wasn't a red wave. It was more like mild spotting. Uh, now, I have to stop and say I saw this joke on Twitter. <laughs> I hadn't seen it. That's a good joke. There have been some interesting exit polls related to gender and marital status that have come out about how people voted. Oh, my goodness. Yes. The polls themselves are interesting. The responses. Mm. Very interesting. We'll get into that. So Brad Wilcox, a marriage and family scholar, um, tweeted the results of um, some exit polls around marriage and gender. And he noted that unmarried women broke almost 7 in 10 for the Democrats. And this is compared to about 40% of married women voted Democrat. Mm -hmm. And this isn't just a married versus unmarried thing. This is a gender thing because, well, unmarried women went 68% for Democrats. Unmarried men went 52% for Republican. It's not just unmarried people tend to vote Democratic and married people tend to vote Republican. Something is happening with gender yes. where single women are increasingly drawn to the values and ideological goals of the Democratic Party, while unmarried men are increasingly drawn to the goals of the GOP. And I'll note, because I think this is important, obviously, this is also an age breakdown. So yes, there's a gender breakdown, a marriage breakdown. Of course, unmarried people generally skew younger, mm -hmm. but it tracks with the gender divide among younger women and men as well. Young women went 72% Democrat and young men went only 54% Democrat. So younger people generally vote more liberal. That's historically true. But we're seeing mm -hmm. a widening gap between men and women young men are increasingly less likely to vote Democrat than in the past. And just kind of armchair political analysis, why do we think that is? Incels. <laughs> well, 
Do, uh, uh, yes. And when we, yes, I, I have thought of this word. Do we need to tell our listeners what incels are? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our listeners surely know. Uh, it stands for involuntary celibate. Yes. Men, generally younger men who feel a grievance over mm-hmm. cultural changes related to dating relationships and marriage that would disadvantage them in the dating pool. Perhaps they feel that women are too picky or are actually outpacing them like professionally and Mm -hmm. career wise. And that feels like a source of intimidation and anger. Yes. And they spend a lot of time online. And a good number of them responded to this tweet. Yeah. I didn't dig a whole lot because I wanted to keep my heart rate at a normal, healthy pace. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, good for you because I went ahead and did. How would you summarize the response to this, this polling that Brad Wilcox had highlighted? Uh, A lot of the responders basically said that these women are unmarriageable, like no one would want to marry them. Mm -hmm. A lot of concern about the demise of the American family that Again, this was the, these unmarried women's fault. Um, we got a, a pastor jumping on saying, Eve needs to be rescued from the serpent. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose um, in this analogy, all unmarried women are Eve and the serpent is like Joe Biden. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of mentions of abortion. Here's one. Uh, Somebody said, well, yeah, unmarried women love to kill their babies. They don't want some kid to ruin their life or anything. Great. Destroying the family helps the Democratic Party, and some Democrats definitely know this and are absolutely counting on this. Yeah. Women need a man in their life, and when women don't have a man in their life, the state becomes the man in their life. So essentially, unmarried women look to big government and social programs to support them in the absence of a husband. I guess that's the point this person was trying to make. I'm starting to feel like maybe some of these comments are not coming from the most thoughtful people. Yeah. I mean, they're pretty crazy, I have to say, and pretty mean. Mm. Oh, here's a good one. There's a picture of a woman with blood coming out of her eyes eating cat food with several cats. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't even know what to say in response to that, but... One of our former guests actually made a really good point in response to kind of trying to make sense of these findings. Hannah Anderson noted, the marriage gap is also a security and stability gap. Life in the U.S. can be harder on unmarried women than married for many reasons, which makes it 0% surprising that unmarried women would support the party that cultivates public sources of security and stability over private ones. So essentially, she's just noting that there are particular vulnerabilities that come with an unmarried status. So it's no wonder that women are responding to the party that, generally speaking, puts programs and policies into place that provide economic relief and support. Right. And I think, you know, she she goes on to say in a in a further tweet the, the point is that minus thick communities, which I think is a great phrase, by the way, um, 
Yeah, let's Minus come back to that. communities, extended kin networks, and the priority of nuclear family, unmarried people, women in particular, don't have much other choice but to look to public sources of care. So thick communities, it's, it's basically, we are in a time when our conception of the public is like the state and the individual. Mm-hmm. And conservative, meaning like classically conservative philosophy would underscore the need for smaller, thicker mediating communities that basically like form a society in between the state and the individual, like families, but also like neighborhoods and neighborhood associations and churches and all the places where we find ourselves to be taken care of in real ways. But so many of those institutions have eroded. Right. And really the one that's left that seems to get the most attention and focus and resources is the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. So for people who are not part of a nuclear family, we've lost so much of our safety net, of our network. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we also see people moving away more from where they grew up or from their families like us. So Mm -hmm. you also have a lot of people living further away from maybe their network that might be attached to a family. Mm -hmm. Of course, the erosion of institutions includes the church. Very much so. So you responded to Hannah. I was proud of you because I don't see you getting on threads very often. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't jump into the Twitter fray very often. It scares no, me. No, you don't. But you did this time. So why did you and, and what did you observe in well, this thread? Part of it is because I think this really does hit close to home for me about something that some things I've been thinking about for a long time and which we've talked about on here, which is like for those of us who are single and advancing in our ages, uh, like what is our social safety network going to be, especially like once our parents are gone? So I had done kind of a deep dive into some data around this last year. I'd asked the team at the at ARDA, the American Religion Data Archives, uh, for those of you. Let's just call it ARDA. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I asked them to do kind of a look for me at church membership back to, I think, the 70s is how far back they could go through the lens of marriage status Mm. and combined with age to see if there's been any changes in the makeup of churches in terms of how many people are married and unmarried, men, women, and like what age ranges. Mm -hmm. It's pretty clear that there are more women than men in churches, which we already knew, but there are much more single women than single men in churches. And that gap has been widening over the years. And there are more and more single women in churches over Mm -hmm. the decades and at older ages as well. So not just like your typical like, oh, there's just a lot of people who are unmarried in their 20s. Like the church ladies. The church. There are more single church ladies. (laughs) Okay. I am envisioning these women in my head because, of course, I have met many of them. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably going to be me. I know. I know. And most of the ones that you're envisioning were widowed. And mm. and and so that was another, you know, I also looked at that marriage status. And and that's that continues to grow also because women outlive men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you just you have like what I would say will be a coming crisis for the church in terms mm-hmm. of like you churches are going to have a lot more single women in their pews at at older ages who don't have children 
They're mm-hmm. not widowed. You know, they don't right, have children. Right. They don't have the same family to support them. And so is the church going to step in and be the thick community that they need to be for those women? I mean, it's obvious that many churches, we've talked about this many times, seem to be oriented around the experience of the nuclear family. Right. Especially the young nuclear family. And I don't blame churches for wanting to cultivate a young dynamic community that ministers to families, but eventually older slash unmarried people, especially unmarried women in the church, if they don't already feel like this already, are going to feel like, I don't know where my place is here. I don't know if these people even see me. Yeah. And and is this the community that's going to be there for me if things happen in my life. Older single women are the most likely group to be in poverty. And a lot of times that's because they're also, they've also been single moms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, I think, I just think those are real questions. Like, is the church going to be the family for these women at some point if they need it? Mm -hmm. You know, I think the church has an assumption of everybody has a safety net from their family, their nuclear family. And just kind of operates with that assumption in mind. And Mm -hmm. I don't just mean financially. I mean, like Thanksgiving dinner, you know, or just different ways that people can feel alone, you know, and unsupported. So (laughs) going back to the Golden Girls for (laughs) literally a third episode in a row, I just I, I don't have a lot of hope that most churches would be able to adjust to Mm -hmm. meet the needs of unmarried women. I just wonder if in that absence, women need to band together. And I think we will have to. Yeah, I do. I had an interesting experience with a friend a few years ago where she had some real medical difficulties and she was single around my age. Um, And actually, ultimately, it caused her to make the decision to move back to be closer to her family because she needed Mm -hmm. so much help. Like she needed to be taken to the hospital and driven home from appointments. And, you know, it was just too much to try to do on her Mm -hmm. own. And I felt Mm -hmm. really conflicted by that because I was like, what, like, how do we as a community, how should we have shown up to support, you know, because that's Mm -hmm. going to be all of us at different points in our lives, you Mm -hmm. know? I also just think that for as much as most of us would say, community is really important. Staying committed and connected to each other is really important. In our day-to-day lives, most of us are very individualistic. Mm-hmm. And value being independent. Yes. And I that is a constant tension in my own life. Mm-hmm. I want people. I want to feel included. I want to be connected. And also, I really enjoy my independence. Right. But at some point, as happens for many people as they age, you realize you can't afford to be that independent anymore. You have to learn how to rely on other people. Amen. Back to the unmarried women being the cause of the downfall of American civilization. I want to point out to all of these lovely commenters that it's not the single women who have abandoned the church in droves and the Christian values. It's the single men. Again, lots more single women in the church than single men. So maybe maybe direct some of that vitriol. Save some for the men. We 
gotta talk about the Babylon Bee tweet. My eyeballs popped at this tweet. Joel Berry is the managing editor of the Babylon Bee, the, I don't know, formerly Christian, anti-woke satirical website. That maybe has destroyed Twitter. I don't know. Unmarried women in America are lost, miserable, addicted to SSRIs, antidepressants, and alcohol, racked with guilt from abortion and wandering Mm -hmm. from partner to partner. They are the Democrats' core base now, and the Democrats will do everything possible to manufacture more of them, starting in kindergarten. I really feel seen. I was like, check, check. Oh my gosh. How does this, how does this man just so vividly capture my essence as an unmarried woman? I I either, okay. Either this man has never actually like interacted with an unmarried, a real unmarried woman. Right. Or this is all just this culture warp. Like it doesn't, at some point it doesn't matter. Like he is just throwing things out that get attention, which we're giving to him right now, that further stigmatize the other. Like, the Democrats Mm -hmm. are bad, so Mm -hmm. these women are bad. Here are the absolute worst things we can assume about them. Let's all lump them in together. It's so gross. I mean, I won't even get into the idea that this man is a professing Christian and, like, how could you possibly talk about people in this way? But at the same time, he is saying out loud what people for a long time have assumed about single women. Maybe not to this degree, but there are hints and shades of very ugly stereotypes about unmarried women here. We're selfish. We're miserable. We're killing our babies. We're probably ugly and well, he did completely. Say that. I know. I'm. I'm just. I. It's just right. But it, ugly to them. Like I mean, there's just this sense. Like that was what I got from a lot of the comments on mm-hmm. Brad Wilcox's tweet. Is just like how there's so much disgust toward these, toward us, toward unmarried women. You know, and like, and and this sense that like, well, it's just because nobody would want to marry them anyway. But but then also, it's our fault that we don't want to get married and we're selfish and we're just putting our career over everything. I don't know. I think this tweet at, the, at its essence is made to convey that those women who don't fit into our family and gender ideology are miserable. Like if they, for Naturally. whatever reason, have opted out of this or are not part of it, they are really, really sad and depressed about it because Mm -hmm. clearly our way of life or approach to whatever is the better way. Yeah. I mean, what's a girl without a man? Okay. But I have noticed a ramping up of the misogyny from certain Christian circles lately. So for example, yes, the screed on Christian nationalism from Stephen Wolf employs a phrase I've never heard before, uh, the gynocracy, <laughs> which is apparently what America has become. What is the gynocracy, Roxy? Please enlighten me. Apparently, a lot of feminine energy is influencing America right now, and everyone's falling prey to it, and it's why we're weak 
and I mean, it's essentially like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the concerns about the feminization of the mm-hmm. church and the nation, right? And as a reaction, we got to get men to man up and stop yes. being p words and yeah, cling to traditional masculine roles and virtues yeah, of strength. And get those and, wives to submit already, mm-hmm. and the unmarried is, ones get them married. I mean, this, none of this is new. I you know. know it's just. But so why, loud. Why do you think ha, are we are we in a backlash cycle? Yeah. Because of our podcast specifically. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we can't stand that these unmarried women in New York are platformed. We want them to be sad, drinking alone on their couches with their cats. Plural, cats. <laughs> <laughs> Despite all the stereotypes of unmarried women that are floating in the ether, we know a lot of them who are kicking butt and taking names, including our guest today, Karen Gonzalez. Karen is an immigrant advocate, writer, and the author of the new book, Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration. For over 100 years of research, they have never found a link between crime and immigration. In fact, they have found that immigrants are five times less likely to be in prison or to commit crimes because most come here to work. Our conversation with Karen is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. We're especially grateful this time of year for RNS's fair and accurate reporting on all things religion. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward getting the word out about the show. So we haven't gotten any offers for a connection from last week's episode, but I would say we're still open. We're open and waiting. Slide into our inbox at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Today's guest is Karen Gonzalez, author of the new book, Beyond Welcome. Immigration, as per usual, became a driving topic in this year's midterms and often something of a political pawn. Um, we saw particularly with the with DeSantis sending immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. We also are living in a city where more and more refugees and immigrants are arriving, many of them coming from the mm-hmm. southern border. So we felt like it would be a great time to talk with Karen about a topic that, you know, is often very close to the heart of the teachings of Jesus. And yet Karen says that many majority culture churches in the U.S. tend to have good intentions when it comes to this topic, and yet talk about immigrants and immigration in a very othering way Mm. instead of a way that's led by mutuality and mutual hospitality. Welcome to the show, Karen. Hey, Karen. So glad you're here. 
Thanks for having me. Hi, Roxy. Hi, Caitlin. So this is the second book that you have written about the topic of immigration. And this is kind of a cheating question because I edited this book, so I already know the answer. (laughs) But for the benefit of our listeners, um, why did you write another book on the topic of immigration? And what is this book doing that The God Who Sees wasn't doing? That's a good question. And really what happened, this book came to be very organically because as I was going around speaking about the first book, The God Who Sees, I found that there were a lot of people, particularly people who are progressive or mainline Protestant, and that has some overlap as well, who their response was kind of like, oh yeah, I already welcome immigrants. Mm -hmm. I already you know, think that's a good idea. And that seemed to be for a lot of people, the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And to me, it felt a little bit like if you were to plant roots in the driveway instead of (laughs) coming all the way inside the house, um, because welcome is really the bare minimum Mm -hmm. that we should do. And there should Mm -hmm. be growth beyond that into solidarity, into kinship, into advocacy together. And so that's what I wanted to do with this book is really, if you already welcome, you already think this is great, then this is the growth that you have to do in Mm. order to be able to do this better. Today, as we're talking to you, it's an election day, (laughs) which means that like politics is on my mind. And of course, every time we have an election, particularly a national election, immigration sort of gets pulled in and politicized in ways that it isn't always the rest of the time. How do you encourage people to engage with the sort of more politicized elements of immigration policy itself while centering the human experience of immigrants and doing some of this work of like kinship? Mm -hmm. One of the things I encourage people to do is one, you can call or email your legislator, Mm. your senator, your representative, and you can ask them, what is your position? You go, and a staffer will answer the phone because I know mm-hmm. I've made these calls. And you can ask them, what is Senator X's position on the Afghan Adjustment Act, mm-hmm. on the DREAM Act, on the busing of immigrants uh, and dropping them off in all these different places? So I think that is something that all, all of us can do. And that is fairly simple. If we are eligible to vote. Again, if we Mm. have a legal right to vote, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's an important thing to do. But then there's inner work that we have to do as well in terms of these messages that are in our society, they get inside us. Because I know I hear them Mm. from people. I hear Christians calling people illegals and using language that's not humanizing or dignifying. And I think that's work that all of us Mm-hmm. can be doing at a personal mm-hmm. level. What are some of those narratives or stereotypes you kind of most want to trouble or challenge that might be in people's heads or just come sort of just be in the in the water in a way? Well, one is that immigrants that are coming to the United States today are different than the ones that came through Ellis Island or mm. through any other, you know, eastern seaport. There's this understanding or this kind of narrative that exists that these immigrants are somehow different but they're really the same, same need, same humanity. What's different is the laws. The laws have changed significantly. And so because there's sort of two signs at the border, one of them says keep out and one of them says help wanted, 
Mm-hmm. That's one narrative that exists. I think there's a belief also that immigrants um, bring crime, mm-hmm. also patently false. In fact, mm. immigrants are more likely to be victims of crimes mm-hmm. because of that vulnerability and invisibility. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in around like 1900, they started doing research on any kind of link between immigration and criminality because they believed that Italians who were migrating at that time were prone to be criminals Mm -hmm. and that they were intellectually inferior. This is, of course, round about the time of eugenics becoming popular in the earlier part of the 20th century. So they started doing research then and they have found Hmm. for over 100 years of research, they have never found a link between crime and immigration in fact, they have found that immigrants are five times less likely to be in prison or to commit crimes because most come here to work and right. to improve their economic situation or to find safety and freedom. And so there is no link there except for the one that you often see mm-hmm. in the media. Let's talk a little bit about the American church. And you had mentioned the phrase, you know, we welcome refugees coming from very well-meaning many white American Christians who want to counter some of the ugly and racist rhetoric in the political realm. And yet you also write about the fact that phrases like we welcome refugees or caring for the least of these, these phrases that we bandy about are insufficient. So why is that language, that kind of language problematic? And for people who do want to signal, we reject this ugly rhetoric, what's What's a better posture? You know, I want to say that I love the intent behind those phrases because it Mm -hmm. shows that people care and that they want to engage in a way that's appropriate. Um, What I want to say is that the problem comes in because language really shapes our imaginations and it can limit the way that we think and see. And so that's the problem with those phrases, because in something like we welcome refugees, there's a we, right, uh, who is the subject of that sentence, and there's a refugees who are the objects. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of separation. There's a little chasm between them. One is a host and one is a guest. Mm -hmm. And we know when people are guests, they're not at home, right? Right. (laughs) They Mm -hmm. are supposed to be on their best behavior. So What that can create is a kind of othering where we start to think of people as the other rather than as kin. So we don't focus on shared humanity, but we focus on these things that are make us different or that separate us. I I like this word that you keep coming back to of kin. Um, But I think about how separate physically most of us are from immigrant communities. you know, even in New York City, I mean, I think we're 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 more adjacent in some ways than a lot of other places, but it still feels like there's there's distance. So I'm wondering when you talk to churches, like how do you encourage churches to to become kin with immigrants in this way, to not just welcome, but become kin? Like what was your encouragement on like a very like let's just do it practical way? I was in a an Episcopal church that I was just visiting to speak at. And um, before I went up to speak, they were having this storytelling dinner. And it was really interesting because they had brought in a person who teaches about storytelling, like from the moth or something, you know, who teaches about how to tell a good story. Mm -hmm. And this person had done a training. And then each of the people in this group 
were taking turns telling their story and people would get to ask questions. And I thought this is a really beautiful way because one man, for example, was really successful and worked as, works at Johns Hopkins, but he was is Puerto Rican. And this is not a part of the story that hardly ever came out, you know. He talked about his family and their migration and the experience of being bicultural and and growing up with a Mm -hmm. single mom. And, you know, he shared this whole story that wasn't just new to me. It was clearly new to everybody around Mm -hmm. that space. But they created a a space to share each other's stories and hold them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really valuable thing because that church had migrants and immigrants in its midst, but nobody really knew. Mm -hmm. This is really good. This is a good challenge for me because I think even as we've been talking, when you said like there are lots of immigrants in your midst, probably in your church, I started thinking about it. And I'm like, actually, I know quite a few. And you're right. I have like, because there's an assimilation that's happened and they just feel like part of my community, I don't center their their story of, of coming here or their parents' story of coming here as much. So this is a good challenge to me. Yeah, on that front, you write very early on in the book, Karen, about the costs of assimilation to a white dominant culture and really highlight that obviously that kind of expectation for immigrants is racially charged, but there are spiritual and cultural costs as well. Like mm-hmm. we, we lose something really uh, precious about people and their stories through the expectation that immigrants act like good white Americans or good white American Christians. You know, people ask me frequently actually about what about Latinos for Trump or what about the fact that most of the border patrol is, you know, Latino mm-hmm. men. Um, and I always say, of course, that exists. That is one of the consequences of assimilation is you don't just assimilate Mm. to the good things, the language and the culture. You assimilate to systems of oppression that are actively harming your own community. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the danger of assimilation. But, you know, there's always going to be losses because my whole education has been in English. There's no Mm -hmm. way that my Spanish is to the level of my English. It's not even close. Mm -hmm. So... I'm not able to communicate with my dad at the same level that I would if my dad was an American. So there's always going to be losses, but the losses can be minimized or can be limited. They don't have to be so utterly complete, but that's some of what can happen with assimilation. That's how you have Mm -hmm. a Ted Cruz. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. how you have a a Marco Rubio, people who, who then want so much to be part of powerful systems that they forget. They forget their own community where they came from, but they also forget any any vulnerable community, mm. right? And it's really interesting because I realized hearing uh, Robert Chowermero speak, this professor from UCLA, uh, he was the first person that introduced me to the idea of Abuelita Faith, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is, you know, Kaid Armas wrote a book about this that's really good. Mm-hmm. When he talked about Abuelita Faith, I realized, wait, my faith comes from (laughs) my grandma too, because that is a really important and common thing in our communities. Or the fact that in our communities, a lot of like liturgy is taken to the streets. Like, for example, we reenact the story of Joseph and Mary looking for shelter. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's taken to the streets. Like our big, most of our spiritual practices are very embodied Mm. and most are very communal. And 
I'd always try to fit myself into what I'd been taught, you know, as, as to how you spend time with God in, in a white evangelical space. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there was this other like spiritual tradition that I had that I had left behind because I, you know, in my understanding was, well, this is everything that's good. This is everything that you accept. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean. There are losses that don't need to happen. Mm-hmm. And there are losses that will just happen. There's no way to avoid it completely. And so um, assimilation can be really harmful and it's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And instead, what we can ask people to do is to integrate. They can keep their own language and culture and then they can add. Mm-hmm. So you have a both and instead of an either or. Thank you so much for this conversation, Karen, um, yeah, and you. for for your book as well, which I Again, I'm biased, but I would recommend to our listeners. <laughs> yes, thank you for your good editing work on that. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate having you here. Thank you. Save by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Winton. Chaz Rizzo put together our look. And Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.